Welcome back to another episode of Croconomics, where we talk about important issues around the globe with important people around the globe while I wear Crocs. Today we will be joined by Samar Al-Balushi, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at University of California, Irvine, and a contributing editor at Africa as a Country. We will be continuing our discussion of AFRICOM and U.S. Africa policy, specifically focused today on East Africa. So for my first question, I wanted to know if you could explain to the listeners what AFRICOM has to do with the East African Warscape. Sure. So um, just very generally, to start with AFRICOM itself, that's the U.S. Military Command for Africa. It was announced, I believe, in 2007 and came into operation in 2008. And... um, In practice, what this looks like is the U.S. has deployed members of its military to uh, military bases across the continent. Those military bases are not necessarily U.S. bases. In many cases, they're sharing previously existing military bases um, of a given African country. Um, And typically what goes on in those bases is that the African militaries are received training from members of the U.S. military. But we also see, have seen, that the U.S. military conducts its own operations across the continent. Uh, In East Africa specifically, the U.S. has a presence in Djibouti um, that is one of its largest and most permanent installations on the continent. And then in Kenya, it has maintained troops on a a military base in the northeastern part of the country. Uh, The name of the base is Manda Bay. And from Manda Bay, uh, U.S. military, um, the Department of Defense has conducted operations in both Somalia and in Yemen. It's from there that they have launched drone strikes into both of those countries. But more uh, on a kind of more everyday level, in addition to training members of the Kenyan military, the U.S. Defense Department has also been training members of the Kenyan police force. So one of the things that I try to think about in my work is looking beyond just the military itself uh, to include cooperation amongst police forces. Before we get further in, I wanted to ask if you could explain what you mean by cosmopolitan militarism and how the United States is performing that in the African continent. Yeah, so the article in which I discuss that concept is focused primarily on how the Kenyan government has projected an image of itself in the war on terror. So it's actually less focused on the United States, which as we know has its own history of framing its role in Africa in particular ways. What I write about in that particular article is the ways in which the Kenyan government has seized upon the kind of global interest in the question of security and more specifically the discourses of peace and security such that the Kenyan government presents itself as, you know, the primary source of protection of these principles, peace and security in the region. And it positions itself in contradistinction 
to neighboring Somalia, which is presented as violent, um, as you know, a failed state. And so it really depends on that kind of geographic, geopolitical imaginary, um, such that Kenya is the space of peace, right, in most people's minds, and Somalia is a space of violence. And the reality, of course, on the ground is actually much more complex because what I describe in that article is that the Kenyan military itself has been involved in operations in Somalia that not only have you know, exacerbated instability within Somalia itself, but then have brought um, violence into Kenya because the members of the militant group Al-Shabaab have responded with attacks inside Kenya itself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you, so you say in um, a different article, Making Sense of the East African Warscape, that Kenya is implicated in America's war in Somalia, which you sort of just explained. Can you explain a bit more about what exactly America's war in Somalia looks like, like on the ground? It's a very good question. And I think, generally speaking, very little is known, um, largely because it's difficult for journalists to get access, uh, let alone any others. So it's probably one of the least understood um, U.S. wars currently. Um, so in 2006, the U.S. supported Ethiopian troops in invading Somalia. So that support looked look like uh, providing air support, um, providing training and funding to the Ethiopian military, and Soon after the Ethiopian troops invaded, first of all, the previously existing government in Somalia fell, and that opened up a whole can of worms, and it's kind of through that disintegration of the Somali government that we saw the emergence of the group that we now know of as al-Shabaab. Um, and from that point on, the United Nations became entangled and even complicit in the US project of war making in the region because it agreed to sponsor a peacekeeping mission in Somalia for which African troops have been the ones to deploy in um, instead of American troops. So we don't actually have a very strong presence of American troops in Somalia. There's only been, I think, between 400 and 700 in the last five or so years. That's quite a small contingent in comparison to the 22,000 plus African troops who have been on the ground. And uh, as you may know, President Trump recently recalled those US troops in Somalia, uh, supposedly with the notion that they're drawing down US troop presence in Africa in general, but in fact, those troops are just gonna be sent to, to Kenya. Uh, so they're not leaving the continent and presumably they'll just continue to be involved in Somalia from neighboring Kenya. Yeah, so how I understand how you describe it is sort of like the U.S. funded Al-Shabaab, basically, and they like led to Al-Shabaab being started. And then now they're using Al-Shabaab as an excuse to continue their work in Somalia and in East Africa. Yeah, so I think that um, for anyone who's interested in learning more about the years leading up to the invasion in 2006 and the years leading up to Al-Shabaab, they should check out uh, the book by Jeremy Scahill called Dirty Wars because he tracks the ways in which um, the CIA was funding a lot of um, militants in the region in the leading up to 2006. So you're right in saying that, you know, we kind of fed into some of these very figures 
prior to that time and then after that, the existence of this group becomes the basis upon which the U.S. justifies and legitimates a continued military presence in the region. Yep. And so, so how do you think Kenya is implicated in America's war in Somalia, as you sort of said in that article? So Kenya became a partner of the U.S. in the war on terror um, much earlier, and actually their partnership extends to 1998 when the uh, Al-Qaeda first bombed U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam. Um, Soon after that, the FBI deployed um, some of its own employees to to assist with the investigations there. And... uh, then starting you know, post 9-11, that's when the US really picked up with its funding and training and support for the Kenyan security apparatus. Then fast forward to 2006 with the invasion of Somalia by the Ethiopians. The Kenyans um, were not involved militarily until five years later in 2011, which is when they sent their troops. And what's important here is that the invasion by the Kenyan army was not sanctioned according to international law. And yet, much like the Ethiopians, there was no backlash, there was no questioning of their actions, largely because these are both allies of the United States government, right? And very soon after they invade, their troops are woven into the UN, or what is now the African Union peacekeeping mission, in a way that's kind of seamless, right? And so what would have otherwise been classified as an act of aggression or a violation of international law is just kind of papered over by weaving them into a peacekeeping operation, which sounds perfectly benign, not something you necessarily would question, despite the fact that the peacekeeping operation itself, the mandate is to engage in counterinsurgency and counterterror operations. Um, So the Kenyan military has been entangled in Somalia for almost 10 years now, which is really striking and something we don't hear very much about. They even engage in bombing campaigns uh, themselves in Somalia. I guess what you're saying is that, like you said, that Kenya, when Kenya invaded, it was not sanctioned by international law. Has there been backlash since AFRICOM was founded in 2007, 2008? Has there been backlash um, because they violated international law at all? So on the question of international law, I think what's something that's important to clarify about how strategic the U.S. has been, they're very skilled when it comes to um, the way they classify things. And Somalia, the U.S. never formally declared war on Somalia. So that in and of itself is really important, right? Because without a formal declaration of war, in theory, Americans have no reason to think anything is even going on at all, right? Uh, Instead, they've used this kind of vague language referring to Somalia as a, quote, area of active hostilities. And that the the moment you use that kind of vague language, that opens the door for all kinds of activity that presumably, you know, if, if you were to kind of ask lawyers to get involved, they wouldn't be able to pinpoint one way or another whether international law is violated or not. Right. So it's very uh, sophisticated politically. As far as how people have reacted to the US military presence, I think that um, one way to make sense of that is to look at the actions of Al-Shabaab, groups like Al-Shabaab themselves, right? Who don't 
necessarily use the language of international law, nor are they necessarily interested in it. They're just concerned politically with the foreign occupation of Somalia and what that means, right? Um, and then outside of the domain of militant groups who are resisting, Africans themselves in various forms have expressed concerns. Um, but I think what's important to state here is that rarely is resistance framed like in the language of no military bases, which is what a lot of Americans, um, that's the, the kind of discourse that American activists use, right? Instead, a lot of people on the ground in places like Kenya where I have done my research are more focused on the impact of the training of their police because that has everyday consequences for them. All of a sudden people are being disappeared. They're being swept off, off the streets. No one knows where they are. In some cases they're tortured. And people know that this is all being promoted and sanctioned by US partner forces. Recently, obviously, there's been a huge, like in the U.S. and, and internationally, there's been like the NSARS movement, there's been in the U.S., the Black Lives Matter movement around the police. But has there been like widespread resistance to these AFRICOM-funded and America-funded police? Or is it mostly just activists here and there that are protesting against it? Yeah, I wouldn't say that there has been widespread resistance or organizing across the continent. Um, I do think it's been more ad hoc, more in relation to specific cases as they arise in which activists have demanded clarity and information, transparency, accountability about what's happening and who is it that's in charge, you know, who is it that's issuing orders for people to be captured and transferred uh, to different places. And what's important here too is that, you know, oftentimes when we're told as Americans about the activities of the US military in Africa by you know, activists here, the focus is on um, like seemingly exceptional places like Guantanamo, like the idea that people are, are transferred to these secret detention sites. But there are a lot of people in Africa who are um, apprehended and held and detained indefinitely in regular African prisons. So there's a need, I think, among activists across, right, like within the U.S. and within Africa to be making those connections and thinking about these like very visible spaces in which people are being held. I know in the U.S., like for me, before I started researching for this project, I didn't really know anything about even what was happening in like the African con continent as a whole and definitely not what was happening in specific countries with AFRICOM and the police. Um, but would you say that the knowledge about AFRICOM is widespread in Kenya or in the rest of the continent and knowledge about the police? Certainly not knowledge about AFRICOM. Um, mm -hmm. That's not something that people talk about regularly, nor are they seeking information about. Um, I think that for most people, what concerns them is what they see on a regular mm -hmm. basis. And they don't actually see members of the US military. And that of course is deliberate, right? Um, the US is very, very purposeful in making sure that um, its own action, actions and its presence are not um, visible knowing that it would garner more scrutiny and critique. So the result of that is that most people across the continent um, at most 
are thinking about members of their own police who are being told, you know, do X and Y by funders and trainers and partners from not only the United States, the UK government is also entangled in this. You said in your article that during coronavirus, a lot of these US operations in Africa and AFRICOM have sort of, or they should have been impacted and they should have changed by coronavirus, but you said they have not. Do you know if like today, AFRICOM operations are still like up and running like like they were when you wrote that article or? Yeah, I'm not aware of the extent to which they have changed um, in recent months. My guess is that uh, not much has changed and that probably members of the military are prioritized in terms of, um, you know, having extra precautionary measures for their own health and safety. So I wouldn't imagine that very much has changed. I have two more questions for you. The first one is, how do you think activists or people who want to help in America should to try and advocate around this issue without like sort of, as you said, simplifying the issue? Or I think in my opinion, what we need most like in the U.S. context in terms of the role that Americans can play is more information. And, uh, you know, we all have elected officials who in theory represent us. And I think one way to obtain information would be to regularly approach um, our representatives and ask them for details, not just, you know, is the U.S. military present in X place, but to actually find out how the U.S. government is negotiating with a certain African government to accomplish certain goals, right? What is offered? in exchange for cooperation with the US military. And so for us to be able to get some of those details, I think that would empower us in in dialogue with people on the ground in these African countries to think through, okay, what are the openings that are available to try to push back? So my final question for you is, do you think that AFRICOM is a real attempt by the United States to build partnership and give humanitarian aid to places in Africa? Or do you believe that it's a modern day attempt of neocolonization by the United States and African countries? So it is definitely not uh, benign. There is, I think we have very little reason, historically speaking, to think of any U.S. engagement anywhere in the world, however it is phrased, with or without U.S. military involvement. And that is key um, to expect that, you know, the primary interest is in helping others. The U.S. inevitably prioritizes its own interests wherever it goes and in whatever uh, agency is kind of at the forefront, whether it's the Department of Defense or any other, the USAID, for example. Um, With that said, to me, it's too simple to understand AFRICOM, like simply in this kind of like broad heading of neocolonialism. I think we need to be much more specific in our analysis and to understand concretely in different places across the continent, what are the US interests that are at play? Such that in Kenya, the interest might be oil and the potential of oil uh, supplies in Somalia and that Kenya provides a good base from which to access oil. In another country, the interest might be different, right? Um, So again, that's where for me, the question of details research, asking questions, all matters, because without those details, we're less empowered, from my perspective, to be able to resist 
you know, what are clearly in some shape or form, like, you know, this is a more powerful force that's acting in, in, the, in the African context. This episode was produced by Tobias Paperno from his studio in his living room on GarageBand, and this project was made possible by Mr. Moscow's International Political Economy class at the Beacon School. Thank you so much for listening, and tune in next week.